consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, girl. Hey. Oh, my gosh. We are recording in somewhat proximity of the time that people are going to hear this. <laughs> and you are recording in a different spot in your house for a very specific reason. Yes. I am very cuddle motivated right now. Uh, <laughs> if you, uh, if we're friends online, you may have already seen this, but uh, yes, uh Two weeks ago, uh, I adopted a Chihuahua mix named Orby, and he is now the newest member of the Wilson family. He's eight pounds. He's eight pounds. Okay, my parents were not dog people, so I'm not the most experienced dog person anyway. And then my last dog was a Basset Hound, a big one. And this is quite different. Like, I keep reminding myself, like, he's a puppy, but, like, he's fully grown. He's not going to get any bigger. I'm just like, this is a little dog. <laughs> you got to watch out for their, those little dogs. They're fast. They are fast. Yeah, you got to watch out when you're opening the door. Well, and he loves hiding under things. <laughs> and so we've actually had to put these barricades like underneath our bed because once he went underneath the bed but like our arms can't reach you know uh-huh. so we like, couldn't get to him but he's constantly under the furniture under the ottoman and he just likes hiding in his little caves you know when uh when we first got ruby she was like four months old probably and she used to do that we would let her out in the backyard and the way the fence worked like we had our car parked like within the fenced area Mm -hmm. and she would crawl under the car past the point of our arms being able to reach and just stay there for hours I mean we had to take treats and like make little trail (laughs) little treat trails 
to lure her out so that we could like bring her inside and go to work. Yes. Yes. So it's been interesting. Um, he's becoming a lot more social every day is better than the last. Um, but it's interesting because both my dogs have been rescues, but buddy, my Bassett came from a foster family. And so when we adopted Orby from a shelter, we were like, oh yeah, we know the rescue dog shtick. It's fine. But at least in this experience, adopting from a shelter was quite different, um, especially because the shelter he was at is over capacity. They're struggling They're you know, and so Buddy was very socialized. He was used to cuddling. He was used to being around people. He was mm-hmm. used to being part of a family. And it was just, we were a new family. And so the concept of furniture and like different things have really seemed to overwhelm him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that there's the rule of threes or whatever. It takes them three days to feel comfortable and then three weeks to get in a routine and three months to feel like it's their family. And that's not how it was with Buddy. Like, he jumped in bed to sleep with us the first night he was home. He was like, make room, you know? <laughs> <laughs> For him to be initially, you know, so nervous, so intimidated and that type of stuff um, was a little like, whoa, this is quite different. But on the opposite end, to see him every day get more comfortable, uh, you know, desire pets. He does this really funny thing where if you're petting him and then you stop, he takes his hand and he boops. And it's like, keep petting. Um, (laughs) That's how you ask for consent if the dog wants you to pet them. That's yes, that's very true. (laughs) But so the fact that he's, you know, snuggling right now, it's something that we've earned as Brene Brown says with layers of trust and vulnerability so plus he got a very special care package with a I gotta say the cutest it's a guacamole bowl yes (laughs) with a chip a lime and an avocado it's an enrichment game yeah it's a plushie and you can hide the chip and the avocado (laughs) and what is it the lime Yes. In the guacamole bowl, and he has to get it out. And they also squeak. Yeah, he's obsessed with this guacamole bowl. Actually, every single <laughs> thing you picked out for him, he's obsessed with the treat game where you like hide the stuff and they have to find it. He's uh-huh. just like, yes, you, Aunt Galit knocked it out of the park. She sent the biggest <laughs> chewy box ever. And he's just like, obsessed especially with the guacamole bowl and the lime he like can't get enough of the lime (laughs) i couldn't stop i spent so much money because all of the things were so tiny it was like you could filter by size of dog so i went to extra small and i was like (laughs) (laughs) well your efforts were not wasted he's extremely thankful no the nice thing too is that you and chris will send me videos of him playing with the toys so that has been extra fun because i squeal every time well she'll the listener should know you'll send a text or a facetime and just be like it's been too long i demand content of my nephew (laughs) anyway you're right this is not uh this isn't dog read dish dog dish double dog dish Double read dog hour. Um, 
Yes. How? So it's been a minute. I think it's been over a month since we've recorded a dish. That's a lot of minutes. What's been going on in your oboe summer break life? Well, I have been busy preparing for some Festival South concerts here in Hattiesburg, which they're cool concepts. Um, I have one uh, on Friday. Beethoven beer poster. I've yeah, been yeah, it's Beethoven, and <laughs> <laughs> they are partnering with a local brewery and pairing a local beer with uh, every piece on the program. So it's a reduced version of Beethoven one for wins. Okay. Um, the Rondino. Uh, and then, oh, um, Gordon Jacob, old wine and new bottles. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that it's like a, it's like a wind chamber concert, but Large each wind piece, chamber stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But each piece has a beverage that goes with it. Are they telling you the beverage? So do you know, like, this is the... Yeah. Okay. It's pretty cool. And it it's taking place in the downtown train depot in Hattiesburg, which is a really beautiful old building. And, like, I think it's going to be pretty cool. I think people are going to love it. And uh, I'm also doing a concert called Odd Couples, where it's non-traditional, maybe non-expected instrument pairings and I'm playing a piece for oboe and guitar and uh we're thinking about having one person dress really sloppy and one person be like overly buttoned up just like the uh the movie the odd couple (laughs) I don't know if oboe and guitar are like so weird though like I feel that weird no oboe and trombone would be like That'd be weird. That'd be weird. That's let's not do that though. Like, well, I know Petey <laughs> Hugh Bach did this like Dutch suit or whatever, but me and my friend Chris Dickey love playing together. And yeah, that's tuba and bassoon. <laughs> and we found a Barbara York trio, but yes, it's a little like, oh gosh. Like <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah, there are balance issues. Yes, there are. <laughs> Yep. Uh, but yeah, we're doing the uh, Via Lobos uh, uh, Sextet Mystico. It's cool. I've done it one other time. It's um, flute, oboe, saxophone, harp, guitar, and celeste. Oh. Yeah. And then great. we're taking that instrumentation and kind of breaking it off into different pairings. Very cool. Yeah, it's a really cool piece. It's got a huge, huge oboe part. So, you know, I like mine. Uh, and <laughs> other than that, I have been actually doing a lot of teaching, a lot mm-hmm. of private teaching. Going up to the Jackson area, one of the suburbs, and teaching uh, in uh, public school summer oboe lessons and a lot of students from around the state are coming to Hattiesburg for lessons this summer which is super super exciting because you know you know as a higher ed applied teacher you are super invested in the health of the um, upcoming young musicians mm-hmm. 
in your state and in your area. So that's actually been really fun and really fulfilling. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. We have a cougar music camp coming up and between oboe and bassoons, we are the two most represented instruments. Wow. We're so excited. We're going to do a double read ensemble, but Dr. Wilson. Yeah. It's super. My colleague, Carrie McCarthy and I were like, so excited, but yeah, it's so awesome to see, you know, high school and junior high age students, like just psyched about double reads. Do you remember being like young and enthusiastic? Oh, those were the days. Well, listen, you haven't told us like the, like anything about your, your trip. The New Zealand trip. Well, first of all, obviously it was awesome. It was beautiful. Um, the flight was not bad at all. Well, tell them why. Yes. We did the sky couch on New Zealand air, <laughs> um, which people are, were like, are you going to fly business class? Are you going to fly first class? And I'd be like, no. And they'd kind of like, which I get it's uncomfortable, but do you know how much those tickets are? They're like, I was like, I don't make that kind of money. I play the bassoon. Uh, but there was a small upgrade to basically turn your seats into a sky couch, which just basically means you've bought out the third seat in the row and it's okay to lay down. And you as a peanut sized person. Oh, yes. You were I... probably all stretched out. I did not have a hard time falling asleep and laying <laughs> down and it was really easy. But yeah, when you're barely five foot two, it's not such a problem. But all of our flights were red eyes. And so we were able to actually get some sleep. So it's just like you went to sleep, you woke up, you were there. So I was very nervous about the flights and those ended up actually being fine. Um... The two performances I gave were at the University of Victoria, that's the New Zealand School of Music, and the University of Waikato. Um, The New Zealand School of Music was just so awesome. And the thing I'll say is everyone was so open and welcoming. It was just like the students, I got to give master classes and... um, I worked with all sorts of woodwind students. It was actually like the woodwind class that I worked with. So I was working with flute players on their Prokofiev Sonata. And I was like, wow, that seems incredibly hard. Uh, Good luck. Uh, But yeah, it was so fun. And the recitals were so special because um, I was there to work with Maori composers on this new commissioning project. But the performances I gave were sharing my work on indigenous self-representation in native North America. And um, the reception was just phenomenal. And I had all these Maori people come up and talk about their experiences being indigenous in these spaces and, you know, feeling cultural isolation and um, how do we talk about it? And when do we talk about it? And all that type of stuff. It was just really fruitful. I was shocked to see the United States ambassador to New Zealand actually showed up for my concert. And so that was amazing uh, and humbling. And um, yeah, same thing at the University of Waikato, just such a positive experience. And there I got to meet up with friend of the podcast, Ben Hoadley. And so we got to have, uh, not as long as I would have liked, but short little uh, intercontinental bassoon hang. Uh, when does that ever happen? I know. Um, 
and you know, I guess the worst part of the trip, one of the composer collaborations I was supposed to do, unfortunately he got COVID. So I wasn't able to go and wouldn't, you know, we just had to uh, go on Airbnb and see if anything was available and happened to find a Oceanside property for pennies and have had to spend a couple of days there. It was really terrible. It was the worst part. It sounds like an incredible hardship. It was a big inconvenience. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I have no complaints. I want to go back. I like, I, I just, if you have the opportunity to go, go. It was nothing but a positive experience. And then I came back and put my bassoon in the closet and have been without it for a couple of weeks because I needed a break and I just started practicing again a couple of days ago, but I was very happy to have a little bit of time off. This was a grueling academic year. Well, okay. So I'm so happy about the success of your trip, but how is Orby uh, loving the bassoon? So far, it seems like a non-event. I love it. It's just kind of something. Yeah. There's no howling or scaling the walls or trying to escape. <laughs> I wonder if it would be different if you played the oboe. I would assume. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Ethelore of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's oboechicago.com. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. We are absolutely delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Alex Kinmonth, Principal Oboe of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Welcome, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I love to start by asking our guests how they started playing their instrument. So could you please tell us your origin story on the oboe? Yeah, sure. Um, well, both my parents play instruments. They're both very musical. My mom is a flutist and my dad plays viola. So I was just always kind of looking up to them. And uh, I remember I've got pictures of, of me or my parents have pictures of me when I was like two or three playing my dad's beater viola as if it was a cello. So I kind of always wanted to like play a string instrument like my dad. So I actually started on violin when I was, I think, in kindergarten. And then um, I added oboe in fourth grade, which is when the band program started. And yeah, I played both for a while, but um, I always ended up doing more orchestra stuff on oboe and yeah, just kind of stuck with it, kept doing fun things and yeah, now I'm here. <laughs> 
Well, can you talk us through maybe starting to get serious about the oboe and deciding it was something that you wanted to pursue in college and professionally? Sure. Um, well, growing up, I I never really thought I was going to be a professional musician. And then um, as high school went on, I just sort of, I became more and more involved in it. And it was sort of the the thing I enjoyed doing most. So when it came time to apply to colleges, I, I just sort of figured, well, I might as well apply to music school. Like it, it seems like if I can make a living doing this, it would be the funnest way to make a living. So that's, that's when I really kind of went headfirst into trying to do this professionally was probably mid to late high school. Can I ask you when you started learning how to make reads? Um, I think the first like exposure to read making was maybe even in eighth grade. I remember doing like a, a little camp, I guess it was kind of like, um, we had like a week off from school and so it was me and a couple other oboe students and we would just go, we all bought like the same starter kit of, of like pre-gouged and shaped cane and, um, yeah, uh, we we went to this teacher and we basically spent all day just learning how to make reads for a couple of days in a row. And then, yeah, from there, just kind of <laughs> kept trying to figure it out and still trying to figure it out. But I think that, that was my first uh, real exposure to read making. I'm just impressed that you were exposed to read making and then decided you wanted to be a professional oboist. <laughs> I know, I know. They don't tell you this when you start oboe. <laughs> Most of it is just whittling on a little piece of cane. <laughs> so tell us about your educational journey and about how you got to where you are today. Uh, sure. So, yeah, I, I started... Well, I, I played in string orchestras on on violin and and then bands in in school and and stuff like that on oboe. I ended up joining the Boston Youth Symphony. I think in high school, I was a, I think I was a sophomore in high school when I started doing that. And um, yeah, then I just found I really enjoyed it, so I applied to music schools. Um, I ended up going to Juilliard, and I spent four years there. And then, yeah, uh, got my job here. And that's kind of the, the short story of it. <laughs> so a, a lot of our listeners aspire to play with orchestras and are very interested in the process of audition preparation. And over the years, we've heard many times that you have to learn how to audition. And so could we hear a little bit about your experience with that process of this unique type of preparation? Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a really weird thing, an audition, because the whole point is to, to figure out if a candidate can play in an orchestra well. And in a lot of ways, playing a good audition has nothing to do with playing in an orchestra. <laughs> so it yeah, it's very it's very detail oriented. I, I think um because you put you know, there are so many standard excerpts that get put up under the microscope for so many years. And so people kind of get so focused on these very minuscule details. And I think in a lot of ways, that's, that's good. That's how you get better is like really analyzing your own playing like with recording and stuff. But 
at the end of the day, it's, um, you are just like showing that you can, that you know the music and you have an opinion on how it goes and that you can play it convincingly. But I think most of the, the difference is really the mindset, like being focused for however many days at a time an audition might be three or four days even. And sometimes there's, you know, a month or two in between rounds. I remember my audition here, there was over a month in between the, the semifinals and the finals. So just kind of staying focused through that whole period of time is, is really challenging. And then also, you know, you, when you play a, a concert, like a symphony or something, you, it's this emotional journey and it like, it makes sense. Like you can empathize. You never really have to skip from one mood to a, another really fast. And that's kind of what you have to do in auditions is like really get into character almost for, you know, 10 or 15 excerpts that are all really different and showcasing different skills and emotions. And you have to kind of get into that zone really fast in between excerpts. So I think those are, those were the biggest things I was focusing on when I was taking auditions is just trusting that your preparation is, is as good as it's going to be on the day. And after that, it's really just a, a mental kind of focus type game. What do you do specifically in your preparation that helps that mental focus? I think like going through that process as many times as possible, even if it's not actually going and taking an audition, but you can kind of put yourself in a similar scenario. Like I played lots of mock auditions um, for other people, for colleagues, for teachers of mine, that especially people that don't play your instrument, because that's the thing I, I think when you're auditioning, you get so focused on like your instrument and mastering your instrument that you kind of forget that not everybody on the committee is going to be an oboist. And so they don't really care what's hard on your instrument. So if you're only playing for other oboists, they might kind of uh, let certain things slide that say a French horn or a violinist would not let those things slide. And they'll point out things and you, that you might not have even notice because you're just like, oh, it's an oboe, it does that. And then the violinist will say like, well, why? Like, <laughs> it doesn't make musical sense. So, and putting yourself in situations like that and uh, recording mock auditions, I did a lot. I would just sort of like pick random, random excerpts on a list or sometimes even just play through the entire list and record it just in one go and like see how that went. And, um, yeah, a lot of the times I could tell, like, when I was sort of zoning out and just going through the motions and that comes across when you record yourself and listen to yourself. So I think, yeah, just getting, getting used to that sort of almost like not schizophrenic, but you have to jump from one, one thing to another really fast and like be able to do it confidently, I guess. Can we hear about the day, or as you mentioned, the process of winning your uh, Detroit Symphony audition? What was that uh, experience like? Give us all the gory details. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty intense, like any audition, really. Um, <clears throat> I remember it was it was in the winter, so the. It was, people might have guessed it's really cold in Detroit. 
<laughs> and uh, it's also really dry. And so when I got here, all my reeds kind of just felt like teeny, teeny, tiny little things. And um, it's kind of, yeah, it was, I remember it kind of being a struggle to just be confident in my reeds. Um, but now, now, that, now that I've lived here a couple years, I, I kind of know what to expect. And I guess, I, I mean, I was trying to do this in, in school while I was auditioning, but just having reeds that will kind of work no matter what the weather's doing. Um, yeah, but I, I played a prelim. I thought it went okay and ended up passing. And then um, I think the next day I played the semis and uh, ended up making the finals. And then the finals were, I think, in January or February? I think January. So it was it was after the holiday and New Year's break. So I remember just sort of sitting at home in my parents' house um, and just sort of wondering, like, what else to do? Because <laughs> I, I already, obviously, like, would shed these excerpts to death. And so... I did have a lot of time to just like focus on on the mental side of of taking auditions. So I was recording myself a lot, just sort of focusing on the like fundamentals, just like being comfortable, especially knowing that I had to go back to Detroit and what the weather was going to be. And then and then I finally did go back. Uh, I remember not actually being that happy with my final round. But um, they asked me and one other person to play again. And um, at that point, I was kind of like, oh, wow, like, I'm like, they actually kind of like that. So I, it kind of gave me a confidence boost. And um, yeah, and then I played one more round. Um, and then uh, they offered me a trial. And so a couple of months after that, even, I, um, I played two weeks with them. I played Tchaikovsky symphonies number one two four and six i think and uh yeah after that they offered me the job and it was on to uh getting tenure <laughs> are there any parts of being a principal oboist uh as a full-time job that have surprised you or have not been what you've expected um yeah definitely i, I think um the amount of score studying that I, I do has kind of surprised me. I mean, I, I was always learning full parts, you know, even if we, I'm just practicing an excerpt, I always thought it was important to kind of know the context of the excerpt. So I would always be listening to and preparing full parts. I mean, a lot of auditions ask, they just list the whole, you know, the whole piece. So you kind of have to prepare whole parts. But um, yeah, the the score studying aspect was something I I knew, you know, I knew of in in high school and college, but I never really I never really had to do it so in depth. And now, since you know you're you playing, you know, multiple pieces every week, just knowing where your part fits into everybody else's makes rehearsal go so much smoother. And since you you and the principal flute are kind of in the, the front of the winds and you're the closest to the strings, so being able to know what the strings are doing and kind of show, because a lot of the times it's really hard for people behind 
the farther back on stage you go, the harder it is to hear the front of the stage. So if I can do anything to let anybody behind me know where the strings are, since I can hear them relatively well, that's a good thing. And knowing what they have before it happens and like being able to to predict what's going to happen is, is really useful. So that's probably the biggest change that I've, I've made in my preparation is it's not just knowing my part really well. It's, it's knowing like everybody, everybody's part in the, the whole orchestra. Have you had um, the opportunity to listen to auditions from the other side of the screen? And if so, what have you learned and what advice can you give auditionees through that experience? Yeah, I've, I've sat on quite a few auditions here. Um, and it, it is really interesting kind of how different it works from what I thought it, how I, how I thought it did in school. And I really wish I had been able to listen to like a professional audition before I, I was taking auditions. Cause you really, you really start to become aware of very specific instrumental problems. Like even if it's not a double read audition that I'm listening to, if, even if it's like, you know, a horn audition or a string audition, it becomes very clear what the common issues are and why people ask certain excerpts. And so when you hear the same problems over and over again, and then one person comes along and it's just not an issue and they can get around that and they really show mastery of the instrument to the point where they can just focus on the music and be musically convincing. I think that's, that's what really sticks out in auditions. And um, I think when I was in school auditioning, I, I got so focused on the details and like, you know, you know, this, this is printed, this articulation, but in this recording, I hear this articulation and stuff like that. And most of the committee members aren't really going to care about things that small. They're really just going to care about the big things. Like, can you play in tune and tempo and like with a, a sound they like? And then after that, are you musically convincing? And that's that's kind of what really sets people apart, I think. And I, I sort of wish I knew knew that before going into it, because I, I think I would have focused on slightly different things while I was auditioning. We all know that collegiality um, in any workplace is really important. But what advice can you give about the best way to be a good colleague in an orchestral job? Hmm, I mean... Just being, you know, a friendly, open person right off the bat is is the best way to to start for sure. Um, yeah, being open to communicating and just discussing problems without without letting your ego get in the way. Like no one's no one's discussing discussing things to to bring a colleague down or anything or or to to complain about their playing. They just everybody's in it to to make it sound as best as possible. And so, yeah, just being open to other ideas and being flexible with your ideas. Like even if you really think a certain passage, a passage should be a certain way, if the rest of the wind section thinks it should be the opposite way, kind of picking your battles. And like, if you, if you can convince them that, you know, politely that your way is, is, how it should go, then, then fine. But I would say just, um, 
yeah, being being flexible and willing to try other things. Um, I think that's something we do really well in the wind section at the DSO is just we're always talking about, you know, how should we articulate this this passage or how should we phrase here? And um, yeah, I think we're all very open to, to everybody's ideas. And even though we're mostly on the same page when we get to the first rehearsal, we still have to decide a lot of things, just uh, some, maybe the strings are doing something a little differently and the brass are doing something a little differently than us. So if someone points that out, we'll all be willing to adjust and yeah, just make it sound as, as good as possible as, uh, as a cohesive group. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit more about your read making style? Um, you had mentioned that your reads changed since moving to Detroit. Um, but yeah, I'd love to know more about how your reads have changed since becoming a principal oboist in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'd say the, the biggest difference, um, is just, you know, the amount of sound you have to produce in a, a professional orchestra. I think coming from a, a conservatory or any, any school, it's people don't have much professional experience. So the kind of volume of sound in a student orchestra is going to be on the smaller side. And then when you have a professional orchestra that's full of people that have been playing in the same hall for 30 or 40 years, they really know that hall really well and kind of what they need to do to create the colors they want in that hall. And um, when I first got to Detroit, it was clear that I just needed to produce a lot more sound and uh, I needed to be able to to play what felt like a forte, but still sound like a piano dolce. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really focused on making my reads more free-blowing. Um, I've always liked a bit of, of cushion in my reads, but I when I first got here, especially, I, I felt that it had the cushion I liked, but it didn't, it was limited. Like at a certain point, it felt like I was just blowing at a wall mm-hmm. and uh, my reads just wouldn't accept any more air. And so it ended up kind of sounding a little pressed at times and mm-hmm. it just didn't have the ring that I, I really wanted. And so now I think I've, I, I changed my shaper tip. I, I changed to a wider shape. Oh. And um, yeah, I just kind of focused on whatever was possible to just allow myself to keep blowing a, a higher volume of air was was much more comfortable than playing against a hard read that just felt like it, you were trying to force it the whole time. How long does it take you to adjust to changing a factor like a shape? It takes a, a while, I suppose. Um, when I changed shapes, I, I bought a couple and I, I probably was tying a couple on each shape, you know, at a time and um, just sort of comparing them. And then I ended up actually pretty quickly deciding on one just because it, it made my scale feel a lot better. Like just the notes seem to line up and be in tune. I, I didn't have to manipulate them as much. So I ended up going with that one. But the whole the whole process of, well, inc- incorporating the shape was definitely a quicker process than 
making my reads more free-blowing in general. I, I feel like that probably took me at least a season or two to really figure out what I wanted my reads to feel like and how that would sound in the hall. And then it, and it's always kind of changing because now we have risers and um, that really changed our how I project in the hall too because now I'm, I think, eight inches off of the off of the ground so I'm just above a lot of people's a lot of people's heads that used to be blocking my sound and the risers are hollow so it kind of amplifies us in a way so it's we're always kind of listening back to recordings and trying to figure out balance and discussing it with colleagues and listening in the hall and and that type of thing so it's kind of a never-ending process what did you end up doing to make your reads more free blowing? Cause I know what you're talking about with feeling like you're blowing into a wall. So what was your solution besides the shape? Were you doing longer scrapes initially? Probably. Um, yeah, definitely the wider shape helped. I, I felt like I could leave a bit more cane on the read in general, just overall. And that kind of helped with opening and having the reads stay open um, and not just like shutting down. I felt like if I, if I took out too much of the spine, especially near the thread, that was a really big factor. And, um, that's kind of where I felt the bottleneck a lot of the time was just the reed wasn't staying open down there, which is, sounds kind of like a weird problem to have, but I really, I tried to, uh, leave a bit more spine, especially maybe in the the bottom third of my back and um I think I did end up kind of elongating my reads I feel like in college my reads were probably around 69 millimeters and now the most comfortable reads I have are around 71 um so that's pretty pretty long for the type of oboe I play on but yeah and then a couple scraping things I was really trying to find a good balance between um, having a transition that sort of allowed my my tips to be really vibrant, but not so steep that it felt like the tip was isolated from the rest of the reed, because mm-hmm. that also began to feel like a little bit of a bottleneck, that it was just the tip vibrating and it wasn't translating through to the rest of the reed. Mm-hmm. So I'll keep a couple of reads from every season just to sort of see how they change. And yeah, when I, when I first got here, my reads were shorter and they probably had a steeper transition and now they're longer. And um, I definitely went through a phase where they, they had very, very smooth transitions. Um, you what some people would maybe say is pencily, like if you're looking at the profile. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I that you can run into issues with that too. So I th- feel like it's a a bit in the middle. But just yeah, having a really efficient a really efficient scraping style that allows a lot of vibrancy, but not sacrificing pitch or tone or anything like that. It's definitely those are the things I was focusing on the first couple of years here. Going back a little bit, you were talking about the difference between making reads as a student and then making reads as a professional. And um, 
my question is, do you think that the smaller and more contained sound is an advantage in an audition that, you know, the, the highly refined read would do better in a professional audition than um, a big read that would play over an entire orchestra that you would play on now? Yeah, I think so. I think in a lot of ways, that's very true. I think um, a read I would play in an audition would be very different from a read I would play in the orchestra most of the time. Um, I'll definitely make reads for specific things in the orchestra. So if there's something, you know, like a, a big Mahler symphony or a lot of parts in Shostakovich or something, or or even Brahms actually, where it's such a lush orchestration that you really have to project over over the orchestra. Um, it would be a little, a little like I guess unmanageable in in, in an audition, or a little restricted. I, I wouldn't say unmanageable, but you wouldn't be able to do everything that you need to show in an audition on one of those reads. So an audition read, I would definitely be focusing on more of a range of colors as opposed to a range of dynamics. Mm. Um, You definitely need, you know, to be able to play loud and soft in an audition. But but the contrast, just because you're not playing with anybody else, I think just showing the contrast is more important than literally playing louder or softer. And I think color is is a more useful way to do that in in an audition. And um, yeah, I just I would say an audition read is probably more flexible in that way. Also, um, yeah, to be able to play in multiple keys and have it still be in tune and have you know be able to adjust whatever note you need to to fit into that key. Um, and then be able to play anything from like Shostakovich 5, which is really delicate and high, to maybe Mahler 3, which is really low, and then maybe a super loud excerpt that they might throw in there also. Thank you for indulging my read geek <laughs> moment. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> So your job has a lot of responsibility in terms of quality of performance. Can you talk to us about how some people call it performance anxiety? Some people, you know, just call it increased amounts of energy. But how do you handle um, that aspect of your job, especially for like solos or big excerpts? Um, Yeah, I think mostly what that comes down to for me is um is my preparation um and just the more confident I am in my preparation the more confident I'm going to be on stage and the easier it is for me to sort of just relax and um not be so results oriented in a way um I guess I, I sort of touched on this when we were talking about auditions but by the time you get on stage, all of your, all of the work is already done. Like you're not going to get any, you're not going to get much better in the time that you're warming up for a concert. 
So just sort of like accepting that. And, um, it's, it's easier to accept that the more preparation you've, you've put into it. And, um, yeah, if, if I'm confident by the end of my practice session, I'm usually pretty confident on stage also. And there's always things that are going to be super hard and stressful, but, um, yeah, just knowing that 99 times out of a hundred, I can do this makes it a little bit better. If you happen to fluke it, you, you can just be like, Oh, that was a freak fluke. Like that never happens. And, um, it's not really worth beating yourself up in the moment. It's kind of, you know, it's a, a problem for future problem solving Alex to deal with, not performing Alex. Um, and yeah, just sort of, if, if that sort of thing happens, going back and analyzing the preparation and then making sure you sort of avoid those sort of mistakes in the future. And yeah, that's just like, you know, part of growing as a musician and in person, I guess, but being like knowing that you've done that so many times before sort of gives me a bit more confidence going into a, a stressful performance. Speaking of preparation, how do you like to balance your practice sessions? What do you uh, like to do um, to get ready for each week's program? Um, well, I definitely like to listen to the whatever I'm preparing before I actually kind of get into the oboe part. I really like to listen to it, even without a score. Um, definitely without the oboe part, just cause, just to hear what the whole work is supposed to sound like. Um, and then kind of hear how the oboe part fits into that and just to have it in my ear before I get so focused on like the notes that I have to play. Um, and then, yeah, I, I guess as I'm preparing my actual part and I sort of notice like, oh, I, ha I have to do this with the strings or this with the brass. Um, I'll sort of be, be doing that in score studying at the same time. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of, you know, doing all the wood shedding after that um, kind of helps me prioritize my, my time, knowing what are the most sort of the most important things for the, the whole orchestra. And then, yeah, just doing woodshedding after that and then kind of putting it all together. And I, um, I'll often just play along with a recording as kind of a final, final run through of a, of a work, just so that I'm sure that I have everything in my ear and I can, you know, put the oboe part into context that way. So you were part of the DSO's recordings of Tchaikovsky's symphonies, one, two, four, and six. And I've been told that four has kind of a big excerpt for y'all, maybe us too. Um, <laughs> so I was wondering if we could hear about, I mean, I've recorded solo albums and chamber pieces, but to record as a symphony orchestra, especially a solo passage within, or, you know, there's so many small solo passages. What was your experience like doing that? That seems so unique. 
Yeah, it was it was pretty wild. Um, so we don't really do like full recording sessions here, or we haven't since I joined. They're all live recordings. So we'll record all the concerts, I guess, in, in that week. So for these, there were two concerts. And then after we're done with the the week, we'll have a, a patch session after the concert. And so um, it, it was really quick, honestly. So you kind of can't rely on the patch sessions because they're mostly just to go over the beginnings and ends of quiet things and get rid of, you know, people coughing in the audience and that sort of stuff. So I think for, for example, the beginning of track four, the, the oboe solo, that was a patch session just to get rid of audience noise. And, um, but I had already done it twice in the, in the, or in the, in a live concert. But I, I don't know if I just wasn't really thinking that that would happen. But then when we uh, started the patch session, it, it felt even more nerve wracking than playing an actual concert because it's like it's a completely empty, quiet hall. And you know that you know this is the one that's going to go on the CD. So you kind of just have to not think about that. And yeah, just play it like you know you can and hope for the best, really. And you're also out of the flow of the whole piece. It's just like, do these this measure to this measure, go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. And you have to sort of think about the tempos that you were taking before and and with like different amounts of adrenaline going, the, the tempos are it's hard to like remember how fast you played it in the concert because you know, then people come in with the same melody right after you and, you know, they're going to have to kind of cut and paste those things together. So, yeah, it is, it's almost in between playing a concert and taking an audition in a way. How do you um, find balance in your life? It sounds like you're a really hard worker. So how do you um, let the, let the steam out and, and relax at the end of the day um I'll, I'll do a lot of things actually i i really like pretty much any form of exercise i play a lot of soccer um i'll go rock climbing i'll go mountain biking um just it helps me just like loosen up all the kinks in my body from playing oboe and just you're thinking of something completely different like when you're when you're riding a mountain bike down a down a hill as fast as you can, you're definitely not thinking about oboe or else you'll you'll crash and <laughs> hurt yourself. So <laughs> it's fun to just sort of be completely focused on on something else. And then yeah, just rest and recovery. Like I'll I uh go get massages every once in a while and do yoga and foam roll and stretch and just sort of hang out with friends outside of outside of the orchestra and yeah have a have some good food or a beer or something and just sort of let your mind reset and sort of explore other things that'll that'll inspire and inform my music making can we hear about a favorite memory that you have of a past performance 
Sure. Um, the most recent Mahler 2 that we did with the Otter was really amazing. Um, it's one of my favorite pieces ever. It's got a great oboe solo in the in the slow movement. Yeah, it's just it's just such an epic piece. And um, yeah, that that was just a really there was so much energy on stage, and yeah, we were all working so hard, and we were all so motivated to to make this performance really special. I think it might have been Yotter's first time conducting Mahler too, actually, which was pretty inspiring. Um, I also have some great memories from the the tour we took to um Japan and China a couple of years ago. Ooh. And that was kind of I mean, it was so busy and crunched for, for time that I'll sort of just um count that all as one <laughs> one performance because it's hard to remember any any specific one performance out of that out of that uh tour, but it was just such a fun time playing in all these different amazing halls and seeing these these cities I had never been to before. Yeah, really, really getting to know my colleagues and just having a great time. Um, has anything funny or potentially embarrassing ever happened to you on stage that you would like to share with us? Sure. Um, this might not quite count because it wasn't during a concert, but it was it was right before. Um <clears throat> I tell this story to students all the time <laughs> because it's just it goes to show that you can put in as much prep as as you want, and then a complete disaster will happen two minutes before the concert, and you, you'll just have to deal with it. But um, I was uh, I was at Brit in Jacksonville, Oregon. It's the summer festival I do every year, and um, it's it's in a shell, so it's basically outdoors. There's a roof, but there's just an open wall to a, to a lawn. And so we get, you know, wind and sometimes even rain can, can get in there, but we, we don't have trays for our reeds or anything. And usually I'll bring a little clip to that, that kind of holds my water and a couple of reeds, but the clip wouldn't fit on the stand. So my, my reeds were just on the stand kind of in front of my music like in in the water and then a big gust of wind blows and it knocks my music into me and it knocks my reeds off of the off of the stand and so they all kind of do a, a 180 and they land corkside down with the water uh container like on top of them no yep. <laughs> and it it destroyed every single reed that i was soaking <laughs> And so this is maybe five minutes before, before a concert. And, um, yeah, I, I just, I had all my, my good reads, my backup reads were all soaking and then they were all just destroyed. So I had to just go into my read case and dig out basically every read <laughs> that might make a sound and sucked them up. And one of them worked well enough to play the concert on. It wasn't very comfortable, but it was good enough to do the job so <laughs> that's so insulting it's like it broke all your reeds and soaked you in the water yeah i know <laughs> added insult to injury oh that's so funny <laughs> <laughs> 
We always close um, with the following question, which is, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Mm, that's a good one. I would definitely say focus is probably like the number one tool that you need to be able to like just acquire all the skills needed to to sort of make a, a career in this. I mean, I was uh, always told that there you really shouldn't have a plan B in mind because in your in your mind, plan B is always going to be like a little bit of an easier option than plan A. Like that's why it's plan B. And so I I was always like very focused on like this is what I want to do. Um but I would also say that I I definitely lacked balance in a lot of ways when I was like late late college, early in my career here. But um at the same time, I, I kind of accepted that. I was just sort of like, this is what I'm going to focus on, you know, for the foreseeable future until I kind of feel set in in my career. And um, yeah, I was just very, very focused. I was listening to as many recordings as possible. I, I feel like that's a really big, really big part of it, just knowing what you want to practice before you practice and being really efficient with your with your practicing and just trying to explore as many musical things as you can and experiment with as many musical and physical you know technique things that you can and sort of finding what works for you and then just putting in the time to really to really master that stuff that is wonderful. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. It was such a pleasure to talk with you and learn from you. And we just can't thank you enough. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great. Okay, thank you for joining us for that episode. And um, hey, it's summer. And so if you want some of our fabulous summer merch, including a abwa, how do you say it? Hot it, boy? A boy? Au hot boys. The oboe's name in French. <laughs> uh, summer tank top. You can head on over to DoubleReadDish.com and help yourself. Uh, Galit, who, oh, she, she's wearing the summer merch. They can't see that. It's an audio is, format. <laughs> it's an audio format. Okay, Galit, who do we have? Like and subscribe, all that jazz. Who do we have coming up on the next episode? Uh, this was wonderful. We are welcoming Joshua Elmore, principal bassoon of the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads.